Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week, we are continuing our Easter series titled The Plot. One of the lessons we learn from the Easter story is that you can do everything right and still end up on a cross. Though Jesus never wronged anyone, he faced opposition from all those he came to save. Yet Jesus responded with remarkable love, patience, and forgiveness. What lessons can we learn from his example? Listen as Andrew Archer continues the plot. We hope that this talk encourages you and inspires you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. A number of years ago, before I began working at the Ridge, I applied for a job with a different ministry. And uh, it was made clear to me throughout this interview process that kind of right from the beginning, the employers let me know that they did not have enough money in the budget to offer me financial compensation that would be kind of enough for us to live, to make on our own. So I knew that if I were to take this position, I'd have to subsidize my income, I'd have to get another job to be able to kind of make ends meet. And the hope was that one day in this role, I would be able to live solely off of that income. Now my wife Delaney and I, we knew that this was gonna be hard, but we sincerely felt like working for this ministry was where God had us. So we said yes. And uh, in spite of that less than ideal circumstance, we decided to do it, to take the job, and I chose to begin uh, searching for other jobs to be able to do alongside of it. And during our time there, Delaney and I really struggled. It was difficult, and one of the hardest parts of it, I think, was finding a job that would kind of like, A, support us financially, but not take up too much time so that I couldn't do the ministry and the things that I wanted to do and what God called me to do. So I found myself kind of either working crazy hours trying to make both of those things happen or kind of having to let one of those slip. And because of that, I mean, there were some months that the groceries were going on the credit card because the checking was zero. And there were some months when we couldn't pay rent. And the worst months were when both of those things were happening at the same time. And now I don't want to share this with you kind of to make the people who were involved look bad or anything of that nature. The part of the reason kind of why I'm leaving out some of the details or I'm being intentionally vague is because I want to protect the people involved and protect their reputation. However, uh, kind of in addition to that, I know that there's part of kind of the, the role of the way that things happened that kind of I played uh, in that. I was partly to blame for some of the things that happened. But that being said, kind of that financial burden and a few other factors led Delaney and I to not being in a good place at all, not mentally, not emotionally, not spiritually. And when it got to its worst, we went to our supervisors for support. However, to our surprise, that wasn't what we received. In the process of sharing our needs with those in charge, really two things happened. The first was that when we kind of expected support, we received something else. I felt that my work ethic and my character were attacked. And now I may have misunderstood some of the comments, some of the things that were said to me. And I can admit I wasn't perfect in fulfilling my role. I wasn't the best there was. However, what was true is I was coming to them for support because we were in need. And instead, I was met with what felt like an attack on my integrity. And there was no real attempt to understand what Delaney and I were going through. And the second thing that happened when I brought these concerns forward was that I learned some information that was withheld from us when I accepted the role about two years before this. I've been led to believe, right, that there was little to no money to really kind of offer to support us, but I came to understand that there was indeed money in the budget. 
And it could have gone toward offering us more financial compensation that could have helped the entire situation. And to Delaney and me, this withholding of information, it felt like an absolute betrayal. These were people we trusted. They were people we looked up to, people we had close relationships with, and we felt that we entered to the agreement without all the relevant information. And even if the money had been earmarked for kind of a rainy day or something else like that, which is what we were told, from our perspective, we were in a torrential downpour. The pain that we felt from the situation caused a few things to happen. It caused us to leave the situation. It caused us, me in particular, to question who God was. I wasn't sure anymore. It caused me to question what God had called me to do. Of that, I had no idea. And it brought just immense grief on us as we kind of move forward in this next season of life. Betrayal is a very difficult thing. It's because you deal with people who are close to you, people who you've let in to your inner circle of trust, people who you care about. And King David, he was no stranger to betrayal. He said this in Psalm 55, verse 12. Now it is not an enemy who insults me. Otherwise, I could bear it. It's not a foe who rises up against me. Otherwise, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion, and good friend. I mean, he's right, right? Like, obviously, it's hard when an enemy, when someone who doesn't really care about you, isn't supposed to care about you in that way, when they don't treat you well, but it pales in comparison to when someone who is close to you, when a friend rises up against you, like David said. And the effects of betrayal, they're devastating. In 2009, psychologist Stanley Rockman, he found this. He defined betrayal as this. It's the sense of being harmed by the intentional actions or omissions of a trusted person. The most common forms of betrayal are harmful disclosures of confidential information, disloyalty, infidelity, dishonesty. They can be traumatic and cause considerable distress. The effects of betrayal include shock, loss and grief, morbid preoccupation, damaged self-esteem, self-doubting and anger. Not infrequently, they produce life-altering changes. The effects of a catastrophic betrayal are most relevant for anxiety disorders and OCD and PTSD in particular. And unfortunately, Betrayal is something that we all experience. Many of us have been betrayed by family and friends. I mean, maybe you told someone something in confidence and they shared it with someone else they shouldn't have. I mean, maybe they talked to you real nice to your face, but as soon as you turn around and leave the room, it's a whole different story. Some of us have experienced betrayal in our relationships. You've given yourself fully You've committed your life to love one person and them alone. They did not return the favor. Some of us have been betrayed in the workplace. Maybe you were told that the promotion was coming and then you were passed over when it was given to someone else. Maybe the people who were in charge and were supposed to treat you objectively and fairly did not do that for whatever reason. Some of us, like me, I think you've probably been betrayed by the church. If that's you, I'm sorry but I'm so glad that you're here because it means that you haven't given up on God. You haven't thrown the baby out with the bad water, bath water, and I pray this morning that God meets you in the midst of your pain. One of the incredible things 
about Jesus is that he gets us. He gets you. He understands your pain. I mean, in this instance in particular, we know Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And this leads us to our takeaway today. When we are betrayed, we look to Jesus. We're continuing our series, The Plot, where we're looking kind of at the week of Easter, the Easter story, and focusing on kind of the opposition that Jesus faced during that week as it time drew near for him to be crucified. And one of the things that, that stands out is, I mean, just thinking of everything that he endured, not just his whole life, but in particular in this one week, is the way that he responded to all of this. So keep that in mind as we dive into the account of his betrayal. And before we hop into that, I just want to set the stage just a hair because Jesus and his friends, they're at in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And while they're there, the priests, the religious leaders, the scribes, they're conspiring together. They're kind of deciding, man, how can we arrest and kill this Jesus? And how can we do it in such a way that it's not going to erupt mass chaos with all these people here in Jerusalem now? We're going to start in John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I mean, what an incredible description of Jesus. Like, think about what the end meant for Jesus. And yet he chose to love through all of that. I hope the same can be said of me and you one day. People will look back and say they chose to love until the end. Verse 2. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Now Judas only mentioned, uh, he's only mentioned a handful of times in the gospel accounts, and, and most of those are references to the specific betrayal, but there's a really interesting interaction among Jesus and the disciples that John recorded in which Jesus does reference Judas. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's kind of telling them some hard truth, as he often did. And as kind of they oftentimes did, they were grumbling and they kind of said, hey, Jesus, what the heck is the deal with this? This is hard. Who could accept this teaching? And he begins to respond. And this is kind of the last thing that he says in his response. And then John adds some comments at the end. This is in John 6, 64. Jesus said, but there are some among you who don't believe. And then John added, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. So even though Judas, at this point in time during the Passover, he has been with Jesus for about three and a half years, and he's been living in his inner circle and seeing everything he's doing and hearing everything he's teaching, he never truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus knew that, and not only that, he also knew that Judas was going to betray him the whole time. We know from the other gospel accounts that by this point in time, when they're about to celebrate the Passover feast, Judas had already met with the high priests and scribes and, had, and said that he would betray Jesus for about 30 pieces of silver. There's a really cool Old Testament prophecy. I would encourage you to check that out relating to the silver. Continuing in chapter 13, verse 3, we read, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, he laid aside his outer clothing, he took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to dry them with a towel tied around him. I mean, this is an incredible act of humility and service. And scholar Edwin A. Blum kind of lets us get a peek into the cultural kind of worldview around uh, foot washing in Jesus' time. He says this, that it was a mark of honor for a host to provide a servant to wash a guest's feet. It was a breach of hospitality not to provide for it. But Jesus, here's the thing, he wasn't hosting the Seder at his house. This was in someone else's house. And he kind of was hosting the dinner, but it wasn't at his house. But also, he didn't provide a servant to do this. Instead, Jesus himself became the servant and showed his disciples that that's kind of the way his kingdom works. The greatest in the kingdom are the ones who use their power to serve and to love. And it's crazy because you see how just kind of how unheard of and and how scandalous this act of love and humility is by the way that Peter responds, right? He kind of says to Jesus, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. You can't do that. You're the master. I should wash your feet. He's kind of like appalled that Jesus would do this. And Jesus kind of goes on after this, after he washes their feet to kind of explain to them the way his kingdom works and how we should all operate in it. And one of those ways is serving. And and as he's doing that, as they're kind of experiencing this traditional Passover meal, he then speaks of a prophecy that's regarding the reality that the Messiah is going to be betrayed. And he references this when we pick up the story in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had said this, when he had told them of the prophecy, he was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. We already saw how Jesus, he knew all along that Judas was going to betray him. But the thing that I find interesting here is that Jesus was troubled by this. I mean, if he knew it, why would he be troubled? And something that that I do sometimes, and maybe you can relate, maybe you can't, but something that I do is, is when I'm going through a difficult time, when stuff is really hard, when it's hard to kind of believe God is good and I'm gonna get through a situation, something that people will often share with me, hey, Jesus understands you, he gets you. And I mean, I've, I've said that a couple of times here this morning, but sometimes when people tell that to me, I can just kind of shrug it off because, well, Jesus is God. Of course, he can deal with it and, and all that. And I can just kind of downplay his struggle. And the reality is Jesus is God, but he was also fully man as well. He's clearly experiencing the immense pain of betrayal here. And the Greek word for troubled, terasso, can also be translated this way. It can be to be disturbed to stir, to agitate, to roil or muddy the waters. And that helps me get the picture of what's going on in Jesus' heart and his soul at this time. He understands the pain of betrayal. He gets the difficult and complex emotions you experience when you are betrayed. He gets you. And he also here, he plainly told them that one of the 12 would betray him. This was the first time that it wasn't some generic, someone is going to betray the Messiah, but you, one of my closest friends, is going to be the one to do it. And this naturally causes a bunch of distress amongst the group. And here's what they say in in verse 22. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of the disciples, the one that Jesus loved, He was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter mentioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and he asked him, Lord, who is it? John, the author of this gospel, is traditionally believed to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's how he referred to himself in this gospel. 
And he's sitting next to Jesus kind of at his right hand during this meal and, and Peter is not. So Peter kind of signals, hey, John, like, John, you gotta, you gotta figure out who this is. And if you know Peter and you think about kind of the way he always reacts to situations, it's often without thinking about it, just kind of rashly, the first emotion he feels, he jumps right into the thing. I'm assuming Peter's trying to find out so he can stop whoever this traitor is. Like, hey, John, you got to let me know because I'm going to throw a beat down on this guy. He is not leaving this room. We can't let this happen to our Messiah. And that's Peter's response. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 26, Jesus replied, he's the one that I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. And when he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, in other words, he was the treasurer of the group, some thought that Jesus was telling him, but what, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. And so while Jesus does kind of, that, that's a conversation, that first part that happens just between Jesus and John, most likely, where he asks him, hey, who is it? And he says, it's the one who dipped, who I will give the dipped bread to. He clearly, John and the other disciples clearly did not get that. They didn't understand what was going on or what Jesus meant. And he even explains, right? Everyone thinks, oh, Judas is just going, he's telling him to leave because he needs to go buy some stuff or give something to the poor. However, I believe that Jesus was really intentional in the way that he responded to John. Warren Wearsby, he shows us the significance of what Jesus was doing. He says this, when Jesus gave the bread to Judas, it was interpreted as an act of love and honor. In fact, Judas was seated at the place of honor, so our Lord's actions were seen in that light. He was bestowing a special honor on Judas. I mean, this has to be the reason for John's confusion, right? Why would Jesus knowingly give the one who is going to betray him such a high honor and act of love? Well, it's really interesting. Some scholars see this as Jesus giving Judas one last chance to turn, to change his mind, to submit to God, to give his heart to him, to give the money back, and to follow Christ. However, he doesn't. He leaves. And then the meal continues. And when the meal ends, Jesus goes on to teach the disciples. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. And then he withdrew them from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and he began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from the prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. 
This is a really fascinating part of the story, and it's one of my favorite sections to kind of look at in the Easter story. However, we, we don't really have time to dig into it too much this morning, but we will be coming back to it toward the end. Luke continues in verse 47. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. It finally happens, in the dead of night, Judas comes and he brings a mob of soldiers and priests and servants, and he comes to betray Jesus. And we know actually a couple extra details from the other gospel accounts. For example, when Judas comes to Jesus, Jesus sees him and he calls him friend. The man who is going to betray him in the moment of his, his treachery, he calls him friend. And second, we know that the disciple who attacked the servant was Peter. And John actually clues us into this in his account. And, and part of me wonders, like, did John include this in his account because he didn't want people reading it later to think, hey, did John do that? Was John the one that cut his ear off? No, it, it was Peter. Remember the guy who always acted so quickly, right? Let's get it, not get it twisted. And here's the thing uh, that, that happens next is, again, it's just the way that Jesus responds is so different. In verse 51, Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the temple police and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Even as Jesus was arrested, and knowing that this arrest and this betrayal was going to lead to his death, and this betrayal was at the hand of one of his closest friends, rather than retaliating, rather than taking vengeance into his own hands or trying to take control of the situation, he chose to love. I think the remarkable way in which he responded is much more clear when we kind of compare and contrast him and the disciples. Right? Jesus wasn't the only one betrayed that night. The rest of the disciples would have felt betrayed as well. I mean, Judas was one of their closest friends. They ran in the same circle, literally of 12 guys, for three years together. They sought and under Jesus' teaching, they ate meals together. They hung out together. They probably just chatted. They did ministry. They did all of these things together. It would have been one of their best friends. And he betrays their teacher. And we see how Peter reacts, right? Peter reacts right away doesn't even wait for Jesus to answer the other disciples who, by the way, they did ask the question, hey, their natural instinct was Jesus, should we do this? Peter said, no, nah, I'm just going to go for it. But still the contrast between how Jesus responded compared to how they responded. I mean, comparing them with Jesus, right? Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, yet he let him be with them for over three years under him. And he cared for Judas during that time. He knew Judas was going to betray him, and yet he shared his last meal with Judas. He knew Judas was going to betray him, and yet he gave him the seat of honor at the last meal. He knew Judas was going to betray him, and yet he gave him the honor of dipping the bread and giving it to him and giving him one last chance to change his heart when he didn't deserve it. And as Judas brought a mob of soldiers to arrest him and betrayed him with a kiss, he called Judas friend. 
And as Peter lashed out in response to the betrayal, how probably many of us might have, Jesus chose to stop the cycle of hurt and violence before any more blood could be shed, and he chose to heal. That kind of love in the midst of betrayal is not natural. And so it begs a couple of questions. How could Jesus respond like that? And why did he respond like that? And in my view, there, there really are two main reasons. See, I think Jesus entrusted himself in the sovereignty and the will, the plan of the Father. If you really study that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that happens right before this, it's really interesting, right? Jesus in anguish, sweating blood, misery, knows what's coming, and he pours it all out to the Father. He says, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass, but nevertheless, your will be done. And not mine, not what I want to happen in my life. It's what you want to happen in my life. That's what matters and what I'm going to do. I mean, in essence, right, he's saying, God, I know what's coming for me. I know I'm about to be betrayed any minute. I know I'm going to be arrested. I know I'm going to be flogged. I know I'm going to be mocked. I know I'm going to be stripped naked and thrown on a cross and killed. I know I'm going to experience the weight of all of the sin of humanity. And I'm going to set them free, but I'm going to have to die and be separated from you to do it. Is there any other way? But your will be done in my life, God, whatever that is. And I think Jesus doesn't need to retaliate, but he's free to love because he trusts in God's sovereignty and his plan. I think he's willing to do that, to walk through whatever God wants to put him through because he knows that he is the beloved of the Father. There's two times that really stand out in Jesus' life where God kind of chose to openly declare his love for Jesus. And it's at his baptism at the beginning of his public ministry And then in the transfiguration with kind of his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And in both of those situations, God looks down on Jesus from heaven and says that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. See, this pain of betrayal, it causes incredible pain and emotional distress. For me, it caused me to question God, to question who I was, to question what God had for my life. And I'm sure it did the same thing for Jesus. But I'm convinced that he was able to withstand this traitorous event because he was certain that he was the beloved by the Father. And so that kind of begs the question, what does that mean for us? Well, I have one encouragement and one question for you. And that encouragement is our takeaway for the day. When you're betrayed, look to Jesus. And first and foremost, look to Jesus to find comfort. He gets you. He understands your pain. He knows the things that you've been through. Even if you think you're the only one that feels that way, you are not alone. He is there. And he wants to comfort you in all of your troubles. And he wants you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He is the one that is good. He is the father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who loves you dearly and took on all of this betrayal and all of this pain to prove that love for you. But we also need to look to Jesus as the example, the example of how we ought to respond in the midst of betrayal or other crises even. We should respond in love full of grace and truth as he did. I mean, it can be tempting in those moments to to clap back in bitterness, to respond with hatred, to continue to perpetuate the cycle of harm that's being wrought out against you. But this this, kind of makes me think of something that, that I share with my daughters all the time because they're fighting all the time, because they're kids and that's what happens with sisters, right? And, and usually what happens is I'll ask them this question. 
What can you control? Can you control how your sister is behaving right now? No, daddy. I, I know you're right. You can't control that. And I'm sorry if she has hurt you or been mean to you or whatever the case is, and I'll deal with her in a minute, I'll talk with her, whatever the case is. But you can only control what? What you do and the way you respond and the way you treat her. And I think the same is true when we're betrayed. We can't control how the other person responds. We can't control what they do, the crazy way they may act or, or whatever the case may be. We can only control what we do, how we respond and how we move forward. And now that doesn't mean when someone betrays you, that relationship is not going to change. You don't have to be best friends with them forever. You might not even be able to be friends with them at all. And that's okay. You don't have to be. But what you need to do is to move forward in grace and truth, full of love. And, and I love the way that Paul puts it. He says, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As much as you can do, whatever's in your control and your grasp, and that is, that, that is choosing to respond in the way that Jesus did. And here's the thing is, is this kind of leads us to the question, though, is how do we position ourselves to respond like Jesus? I mean, how do we do that? Like, that's crazy. How could we even imagine doing that? And, and my answer would be, we just do what Jesus did. We entrust ourselves to the God who is sovereign and in control in all situations. We let go of us trying to hold on to that last bit of control or, or the vengeance that we want to exact, and we just let go of it. And we just say, God, it is yours to deal with. And I'm entrusting myself to you and who you are. And we allow God's love to wrap our hearts and our souls and protect us and heal and bring comfort in the midst of that pain, in the midst of the things you may be believing, in the midst of the lies, in the midst of the hurt and the confusion and whatever that is. You just go to God and you just let him pour the love out on you and you let it sink, then, sink in until you know that you are the beloved. And I think the ways that we can do this is we can seek God in prayer and in his word like, like Jesus did. I mean, we see this moment of his prayer right in the garden, but we know from the gospel accounts that it was like all the time, every day, every week, he's getting away from everybody to go spend time with God and hear this truth from the Father and be reminded that he's sovereign, even though this stuff is crazy and what he has to go through and that he is loved and that it is all going to work out in the end. We got to get away and we got to just spend time with God and allow him to speak that truth into our lives. And I'm not saying this is easy. But I do believe it's what we should be aiming for. And it's the thing that is the better way. And I think with the help of God's spirit, as we look to Jesus, we can respond like Jesus. Before we finish, just a, a word for those among us who maybe are not those who have been betrayed, but, but maybe have been the betrayer. I would just ask you to seek God's forgiveness for whatever that situation is. I would ask you to know too that you are also the beloved. He also loves you and cares for you. He wants you to be in relationship with him. He doesn't want the strife and the stress and the pain and the craziness to continue. He wants you to know that you are his beloved. And, and, and as much as you can, as much as it's possible with you, attempting to make things right if that's possible and living as peaceably as much as it depends on you. We're gonna wrap up with a song. And, and for me, even when I'm not on stage or if I'm not involved with the service, I'm just sitting there and, and kind of watching and taking it in. These have become some of the times at the end of the service with the song that have become most dear to me. 
I mean, it's just a time to reflect, to quiet your heart, to think about what you just heard and process what God is saying to you and to take in the truth of the song that is about to be sung. And so I would invite you right now to consider that, to do that, and to just consider the truth that you are God's beloved, no matter what lies you might be believing. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that these things are true. And we ask for your help, God, to know these things intimately and deeply and fully as your son Jesus did. That we look to him when we face these times of betrayal and hurt and pain and confusion. God, and we were able to grow closer with him because of it. And we were able to respond in love full of grace and truth like he did. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.